Amen and amen. Your heart's already been stirred to worship this morning, singing of His Word. Thank you, Pastor Justin, Miss Melody, Brother Brock, Miss Suzanne, choir, for leading us the way that you do. Um, I, I just, I'm very excited just even singing that song, thinking of, you know what, it's been a year through the book of Leviticus, and we have beheld the Lamb of God. Uh, the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, on a continual week-to-week basis. And I'm excited to do that again with you today. We're back. We're in Leviticus chapter 22. We're going to be covering the entire chapter. I'm going to be reading just verses 17 through 21. Um, let me say up front, today will probably be a little bit uncharacteristic for us. What I mean by that is we will not be going verse by verse, uh, as we often do in plumbing the depths of this chapter, because I believe there is something of, of great significance that needs to be explored that won't allow us to do that as we normally do. So I, I really want to give an overview of the chapter to you, but this will be more of a flyover from 30,000 feet than a walk along the terrain. And so Leviticus chapter two, 22, starting in verse 17, we'll read to verse 21. The precious and errant infallible word of God says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel and say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or the strangers in Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows or for any of his freewill offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, you shall offer of your own freewill a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Whatever has a defect you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, you are indeed worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. You have acted faithfully consistently, lovingly, mercifully, and justly throughout all of redemptive history. This morning, we gather as your people to celebrate your Son, to give you thanks in and through Him. We come because your Spirit has changed our hearts, our affections, and our minds. We come, Lord, with a sincere desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. We've sung songs of truth that we lift up as praise to encourage and edify Christ's body. And Father, now as we hear from your word, we pray that you might grant us grace to understand these things. That the Holy Spirit might impress them upon our hearts and that we might respond rightly. You know the word we need to hear, Father. And you know how we need to respond. We pray now for the grace to do both. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, if you remember, we were in chapter 21, and we covered that entire chapter. We, we saw that in order to draw near to the Lord, one must attain and maintain perfection in holiness. That is what's required. We saw for the old covenant people of God that the Lord gave them a sacrificial system so that he might dwell in their midst, that they might draw near to him. No one drew nearer than the priest, 
And out of the priest, no one drew nearer than the high priest. We saw in chapter 21 that the expectation is that they would protect the holiness that the Lord had granted. So the Lord set them apart to to draw near on behalf of the people and offer sacrifices. We also saw that, that picture of perfection and holiness. That in the symbol of physical perfection, when Aaron's descendants were told, anyone who had a blemish were not to draw near to the Lord. We considered together that the only appropriate way to think about this is in terms of Christ being that perfect high priest who attained and maintained perfection and holiness so that he could draw near to the Lord to offer the perfect sacrifice. That's where we kind of are now in chapter 22. Not only does the Lord require perfection and holiness for one to draw near, but the Lord actually requires a perfect sacrifice. As we look at chapter 2, we're, we're actually going to start at the end uh, and then kind of work our way back to the beginning. And instead of one big idea, I'm actually going to give you two big ideas. And, and hopefully at the end, it'll kind of all come together and everyone will agree that that was okay to do just this once. And if not, then I apologize. Uh, the first big idea is what we just said, right? Offer a perfect sacrifice. Offer a perfect sacrifice. The offering the Lord accepts must be perfect. And the second big idea we will see as we move backwards toward the beginning of the chapters is the priests were called to protect the holy things. So offering a perfect sacrifice and protecting the holy things. Here in chapter 22, uh, we start with finding instructions on offering a perfect sacrifice. And then we're going to go look at protecting the holy things of the Lord. Let's start at the ending. That is, begin by offering a perfect sacrifice. We really find this in verse 19 all the way through the end. What the Lord required of Israel, again, was a perfect sacrifice. First, it had to be the right type of sacrifice. It had to be the right type. Uh, It must be a bull, goat, or sheep. They could not bring whatever they wanted. They could not bring something they had killed in hunting season, something they had found. They couldn't offer a pet. It had to be a bull, goat, or sheep. What the Lord told them was okay to bring forth. The specific type of offering we see in chapter 22 is is what is called a burnt offering or peace offering. And now again, if you've been with us throughout all this year, that should sound pretty familiar to you. There's, There's really, in this text, there's really nothing new. Right? We've seen all of this before. We've seen that the only acceptable sacrifices are that of a bull, goat, and sheep. We know what a burnt offering is and a peace offering. And if you don't remember, then just go back to chapter 1 to read about the burnt offering or chapter 3 to talk about the peace offering. But what I do want to point out here is that these are what is called thank offerings, not sin offerings. Really, in the whole sacrificial system, you can break it down into two categories. All their sacrifices, you had, on the one hand, the thank offerings versus what we would call a sin or guilt offering. The thank offering was a voluntary offering someone brought in order to simply express gratitude toward the Lord. It was not required, but a sin or guilt offering, they were required. When someone realized that they had sinned against the Lord, they were guilty before Him, they brought before Him a guilt offering in order to receive atonement. 
So not only do we have described here the right type of sacrifice, we also have a sacrifice we see that must be without blemish. Without blemish. Verse 21, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no defect in it. And as you read through chapter 22, you really can can pick up several parallels, particularly in this section with what we saw last week in chapter 21. Uh, The description of those descendants of Aaron who could not draw near to the Lord. It's almost an identical list. The same blemishes are listed of those animals that could not be brought before the Lord's altar. So not only may the priest maintain perfection and holiness as, we, as what we learn in all this, but in order to bring the sacrifice, the sacrifice itself must be perfect. We've considered this before, that this is partially a matter of value. right? If they're going to offer a gift to the Lord, it must be a valuable gift. Why? Well, because their king is worthy, and that valuable gift displays his worthiness. But we also know that nothing less than a perfect sacrifice would be accepted by the Lord on their behalf in order to really atone for their sins. In fact, we could say this, only the perfect offering offered the perfect way would be accepted. Only the perfect offering offered the perfect way would be accepted. And and really, this is kind of what this is all about. It's about acceptance. You may have picked up on that if you were able to read chapter 21 this week. It's stated no less than seven times. Three times in verses 19 through 21, again in 23, 25, 27, and 29, it talks about the offering being accepted before the Lord. If the offering was accepted, then they were accepted and received favor from the Lord. If their offering was not accepted, they were not accepted. Okay, I said we're moving at 30,000 feet here, so I want to move without apology and simply say that the same thing is true today. The Lord still requires a perfect offering, no less than He did in the days of Israel. And in fact, if you've been with me all through Leviticus, you know the answer to this. I'm throwing you a softball here. We could say it together. Who is that perfect offering? That was so lackadaisical, right? I mean, come on, guys. I think we've got visitors in here. Um, Let's say, remember, we're celebrating Jesus today, all right? Who is that perfect offering? Jesus. Much better. Why couldn't you do that the first time, right? You didn't make me, I'm just kidding, I love it. All right, uh, Jesus Christ is the perfect offering. What I want us to consider today is, is that often... This just kind of shook me this week. I spent so much time in Pastor Justin's office this week. Uh, Bless that man. Uh, We think of this. When we think of this, we think of this in terms of the sin offering, which is true and important, right? Jesus Christ is the perfect sin offering. But Christ wasn't only a sin offering. In fact, we could say Christ was only a sin offering because he was first a thank offering. He was first a thank offering. But before Jesus could be a sin offering, he had to be a thank offering. Now, even that can can just be really difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But I want us to challenge ourselves to make sure we're thinking about this correctly. Right? The the way I think we need to do that is, is simply, yes, remembering that Jesus is 
fully God and fully man. He is truly God and truly man. One person, two natures. Those natures are never confused, yet they are absolutely inseparable. But here's, here's something I wrestle with. I think when we consider often the perfection of Christ in terms of Him being offered to God as the perfect sacrifice, as the perfect thank offering and the perfect sin offering, it's important that we do think about that in terms of His humanity. The reason for that is I, I think we often hear, yeah, Jesus was a perfect thank offering. Of course He was because He was truly God. We go immediately there to his divinity and think, well, God was born a man. And yes, he was perfect because he was God. And what we do sometimes is we fail to give really any real significance to the fact that Jesus was tempted. That Jesus had to respond to real trials, real disappointments, and real struggles. We would all do well to remember that the writer of Hebrews says in regards to this, that Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 was in all points tempted as we are. I would remind us, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. And yet we also know from James that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. The Son of God is God and he cannot be tempted Yet Jesus Christ, both truly God and truly man, is tempted in every way we are. This is why the Son of God had to become man and assume our flesh. A real man with a real will. A full man, not just a cloak, not just the Son of God wearing skin, but fully man. Yet, in all of these temptations, struggles, sufferings, we know that Jesus was without sin, that he lived a life of grateful obedience. By the way, that is the thank offering. You know that, right? right? From the very beginning, man was created to offer a thank offering to God. In the garden, it was not that they were to offer an offering or sacrifices the way they do in Leviticus. The offering in the garden was to be a grateful life of full obedience. Now, we know the story. Adam, of course, did not offer that. So Jesus' life, before it was ever handed over to wicked men to be crucified on a cross, was that of a perfect, spotless, unblemished thank offering. In fact, we can consider the, the testimony of Scripture in regard to Christ's sinlessness. Unlike Adam and Israel... When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he did not respond by demanding the food that he craved. Instead, he responded, John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Or what we know in his temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4, right? That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Only Jesus could say that with true sincerity. In fact, he could say this as well, John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Consider that. The Son of God's will never contradicts the Father's will. Yet, he is saying, I have not come to do my will in his humanity, but my Father's will. I have come, the Son of God, in my divinity, to do my Father's will in my humanity. To set aside my will that I might do his will. 
Not only his deeds, but every word he spoke was spoken in grateful obedience to his Father. Think of John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. It was only Jesus alone who could say without any hint of arrogance or hypocrisy in John 8, 29, For I always do those things that please him. You realize that? I, I think this is what kind of just, I couldn't wrap my mind around this week. When I, when I read that, I think the first hundred times I read John 8, I always thought it's because of his divinity. But, but do you realize this? He, he's speaking John 8, 29 in his humanity. As a man, he says, I always do what pleases the Father. That's the thank offering. That is a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. Never before, never had man uttered those words in truth until Jesus Christ. In fact, it brings to your mind Mount Sinai, right? Or the plains of Moab, where where God makes the covenant with Israel. What do they say? All that the Lord has said, we will do. And then you have a lot of the Old Testament that says, nah. (laughs) But Jesus says, for I always do the things that please him. And it was absolutely true because his life was a perfect thank offering. So Jesus alone was able to pray at the end of his life in John 17. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus alone, when facing the temptation, the greatest temptation that any man had ever faced, I remind you again, the Son of God's will will never contradict the Father's will. And yet Jesus prays, not as I will, but as you will. Now listen, this is the point. Jesus was not the perfect spotless Lamb of God without blemish or stain because he was fully divine. And I think we're tempted to think in those terms, right? Of course he was perfect. He's God. He was perfect. But forget not, he assumed our humanity truly so that he could be tempted and suffer, so he could obey and be perfected. Jesus was was the perfect spotless lamb of God because his life was a thank offering, because of his act of obedience. Again, I said it at the beginning. His natures are inseparable, okay? Don't accuse me of Nestorianism. Most of you may not know what that means, but, so you couldn't anyway. But still, don't accuse me of that because it's not at all. The point is, his divinity is what makes his sacrifice infinitely valuable. So that all who believe in him ultimately are saved. He can claim them as his own because he is the Son of God. There is no limit nor value to his sacrifice. He could save a billion worlds full of people like ours. It is of limitless value. But hear me. Man had to offer the thank offering. And the sin offering. In Christ, through his obedience, he offers both 
on behalf of all of God's people. And so Jesus' active obedience leads ultimately to his passive obedience, to that sin offering, the one we most often think about when we think of Jesus' offering. Jesus is able to be that sin offering because he is the thank offering. Again, we'll just consider the testimony of Scripture, right? That writer of Hebrews explains in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. So let's just think about that, right? That, that, that is, it made someone ritually pure so that they might draw near to God under the old covenant system. If the blood of goats did that, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Peter would add in in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So again... Christ was the perfect, righteous, spotless Lamb of God who became our sin offering because He was our thank offering. Really, I would just encourage you to to read the rest of Hebrews chapter 10 that we didn't read already, right? 1 through 14 particularly. In fact, this is what Christ said when He came into the world uh, in Hebrews 10. He says, uh, Therefore, when He came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Then then he makes the point, uh, Hebrews goes on and makes the point that all the sacrifices in the world could do absolutely nothing to cleanse a defiled sinner. So, So hear me, Christ did not come into the world ultimately... To offer another sin offering. Not in this sense anyway. But what the Lord desired, remember, was obedience. A perfect thank offering. That he had to obey completely, fully, truly, all the way. He had to be righteous from start to finish so that he might be a perfect sin offering. Michael Horton, uh, who is not related to any of our Hortons, but uh, it would be cool if he was because he's really smart, um, and so are they. So Michael Horton writes in The Christian Faith, he writes a systematic theology. Um, he, he writes this. He says, a genuine thank offering, that is, a human life of grateful obedience, is greater than all of the bulls and goats on Israel's altar. Amen. Now, we've considered that already to some extent, haven't we? How much blood... How many animals were sacrificed? And and Christ's thank offering, his perfect obedient life was more pleasing to God than all of those things combined. That's why we read in Philippians chapter 2, right? Verse 6, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, it says, because of this reason, because he humbled himself, because he became a man, because he assumed our flesh, even a human will, because he set aside his divine prerogatives and lived a life of perfect obedience unto death. Therefore, verse 9, God also has highly exalted him 
and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right. I think we've hammered that home enough, don't you? You don't have to say yes so emphatically, but I appreciate it. Um, I'm teasing. I'm sure you have more questions about that. That's, that's tough stuff. Uh, good. Ask the questions after the service, not during. But we're moving on to the second. Okay, again, we're moving backwards. So we saw the first main idea. Hopefully we've proven that point. Now we're in verses 1 through 16, the first part of the chapter. What we have there, the second big idea, are simply the instructions to protect the holy things of God. Protecting the holy things of God. Again, this has been described in other places. We've seen this in other places. It's here because think about the context, right? Leviticus 18 through 20 is known as the holiness code. It's spoken to all of Israel. How were they supposed to live these holy lives before the Lord? And then the focus in chapter 21 now shifts toward the priests and their holiness, the holy things of the Lord, which would be his tabernacle, later his temple, his priest, his sacrifices, all the tools that were used at the altar to offer those sacrifices. Those holy things must be protected. They must be cared for and they must be treated as holy. It's all about Holiness, as a majority of Leviticus has been. Again, think of our sentence, right? The holy king dwelling in the midst of his holy people, speaking through his holy prophet Moses. And so in verses 1 through 16, we have protecting the holy things. This was the job of the priest. That's why they're addressed specifically here. Specifically, the priests are to protect the holy things from the priest, first and foremost. If a priest becomes unclean, Do not go near the holy things. And then in verses 10 through 16, the priests are also to protect the holy things from people who are not priests. So just to fill in your outline here, because I think I'm going to give you a lot of stuff here. It goes, only the priest and those who belong to the priest could eat the Lord's holy things. Right? That's the first one. Only the priest and those who belong to the priest could eat the Lord's holy things. So no lay people. Right? No foreign guests, no hired workers may partake of the holy things. They belong to the priest and his people. They, they actually belong to the Lord, right? Uh, the Lord had graciously given those things to the priest as their provision. So only those born into the priest's household or purchased into this household were able to have access to the holy things. Verses 1 through 9 teaches us only priests who were clean could handle the Lord's holy things. Only the priests who were clean could handle the Lord's holy things. Again, 30,000 feet, let me just simply say, application, still true today. That's the big idea, right? Uh, Protecting the Lord's holy things still applies to us today. In fact, what we see is that Christ protects the holy things of God. Now, I know what your question is. All right, well, what are these things? Holy things, right? We don't have a temple tabernacle in the same way anymore. We don't have particular tools that are used to offer offerings um, on the old covenant. Those things were obvious, right? The, the differences between holy and common things were much more stark. But, but what about now? Is anything holy? Or has Christ come and when he, when he came, he made everything holy? I would submit to you that the Lord still has holy things. In fact, there's a day coming when Christ returns and all things will be holy. 
We have the first fruits of that now. We do not have the final installment. And so what are the holy things? What are these things set apart from him? Things that are treated as holy and not common. Things that should not be profaned. They're these. First and foremost, Christ. Christ is the first holy thing. Um, Christ is first. The God-man, Jesus Christ, our high priest, is holy. Christ is holy. Remember, he's not only the high priest, right? Christ is the altar, the temple, the, the, the sacrifice. He is our holiness. Christ is holy. Really, the next thing, they're just derived from Christ's holiness. Uh, not only is Christ holy, or Jesus is holy, the church is holy. Why? Because the church represents Christ. It is the body of Christ... And thereby, its holiness is derived from Christ, its head. But the church is holy. Stated several times throughout Scripture in First and Second Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Talking to the church. That temple is holy. That's why Paul warns in verse 17, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. The temple belongs to God. It is set apart unto God's purposes. You do not profane what belongs to the Lord. You do not treat it as common and expect no consequence. I'll go a step further. Not only are we the temple, but we ourselves are also an offering. Romans 12.1, right? Paul calls us to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, are we to be a sin offering? No, there was one of those, Hebrews 10. But we are to be thank offerings. We are still called to be thank offerings. We are to live lives of grateful obedience in Christ. So Jesus is holy, the church is holy, the ordinances are holy. If you don't know what ordinances are, there's two of them we practice in our church. That is baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they are holy. Listen, we, I know we, we, one of the reasons we use the term symbols is because of error that we have to correct. But I would say we can go too far. They are not just symbols we use for obedience. The ordinances are holy because they portray Christ. Right? The church represents Christ, and the ordinances portray Christ. They are a picture of Christ. Baptism, a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. The Lord's Supper, a picture of His body being broken and His blood being poured out for God's people. They are holy, so they should be treated as holy. Remember 1 Corinthians 11, that that text, right, where where Paul was saying, listen, why did some of of you suffer even to the point of death? For misusing the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it's holy. (laughs) So, okay, Jesus is holy, the church is holy, ordinances are holy. Finally, God's word is holy. We know this one. God's word is holy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That truth... God's word, his gospel, that is holy. That's why Jude was so fired up, right? 
Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I find it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith because this truth is holy. Do not let people treat it as common or profane. As high priest, Christ protects God's holy things. He keeps His church unstained. His ordinance is pure and His word undefiled. But what about us? Remember what we are according to God's word. Church family, we are a royal priesthood. So so let's go, go through all these holy things and ask ourselves, as the priesthood of God, do we protect God's holy things? Well, do we protect Christ? God's most holy possession? Someone may ask, and understandably so, how can we protect Christ? I think this is exactly what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 3, verses 14 through 15, where he says, And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but do what? Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That word sanctify is set apart. Honor. Make Christ holy in your hearts as holy. How do we make Christ holy? We don't, but we do set him apart as holy. We acknowledge his holiness. We treat him as holy. And I I will mention, listen, it's important we understand that verse, 1 Peter 3, that's actually in the context of Peter calling the church to be willing to suffer and not to avoid or forsake suffering. So how do we profane Christ and treat him as common? Often... It's by seeking our own comfort. Often it's by being unwilling to suffer for his sake so that he might be honored and glorified or by our suffering for doing good. We must, church, set apart Christ in our hearts. First and foremost, we acknowledge his holiness. What was the next holy thing? Okay, let's ask. Do we protect the church? Do we protect Christ by setting apart his holy in our hearts? But... Do we also protect the church? Listen, the answer is no if we do not practice biblical church membership or biblical church discipline. The answer is simply no, period. You do not treat Christ's body as holy where that is not protected. We do not treat the church as holy even if we do not love the church more than our friends, our hobbies, our treasures, and our work. We don't. This is hard for us. And you know what? It should be. It's not an easy thing, but it's a true thing. We must protect the church. Do we protect the ordinances? We protect Christ, we protect the church, we protect the ordinances, not if we don't partake in them corporately with a biblical understanding of their effectual work of sanctification as a means of grace. Not if we don't have a biblical understanding of God's work in and through them. Not when we simply see them as symbols that are no means of grace to us at all. Or not where they are not practiced regularly and correctly. Finally, do we protect God's holy word? Let's be honest, guys. Do we, do we treat it as a holy thing? I can't help but to think... We profane this holy thing more than the others. Listen, where God's word sits upon a shelf next to all the other common books, we profane it and treat it as common. Do we treasure it? 
Are we being equipped? Are we being purposeful about pursuing that training which we need in order to protect it? So when those in our society malign it or speak ill of it, they attempt to degrade it, that we're able to give a defense that is pleasing to God? Listen, these holy things belong to God. We should desire to see them honored and treat them as such. Okay. I don't know what time it is, but I guess, yeah, that's probably good. Let me bring this to an end. Christ is our righteousness. Remember where we started. His perfect thank offering is ultimately our thank offering. Yes, our lives are to still be living sacrifices, thank offerings to the Lord. We are to live a pleasing life to God. But we are only righteous before God because of Jesus' perfect righteous life and His perfect thank offering that has been given to us freely by His grace. It has been put in our account so that when God the Father looks upon us, He sees Christ's righteousness. Praise be to God. He is our thank offering. We do not acknowledge our failures in protecting God's holy things so that we can leave this room overwhelmed by guilt or self-pity. Instead, we acknowledge that sin. We allow the Holy Spirit to convict us by His Word so that we might have all the more gratitude for what Jesus has done as our perfect sacrifice. So we might all the more give Him praise, honor, and glory. So we might pray that the Lord would sanctify us, that we would be faithful in worshiping Him and growing in His grace and serving His people. There's no place for guilt in the life of a believer. But there is exhortation. Christ is our righteousness. Therefore, we as His people cannot continue in unrighteousness. Christ is our holiness. Therefore, we cannot continue to confuse that which is holy and common. By His grace, we must change. We must grow. Listen, it is so ironic that Baptists are known for their hatred of change. You know why? Because you are called to change. That's what sanctification is. It's a continual call to change. So don't come at me with, well, this is the way it's always been. Friend, are you being sanctified? Then you're being changed by the grace of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. That you are growing and changing by His grace. So let us strive together to set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. Let us exhort one another as we go towards holiness and we worship and grow and serve together as God's holy temple. Let us recognize the value and efficacy of the ordinances. And let us, oh, let us treasure the word of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? Gracious Father, we thank you that this really, I pray, helps to round out our understanding of what is required and thereby understand better that which has been given. Your Son setting aside His divine prerogative to take on human flesh and become man. The perfect one becoming perfect. The Son of God. It is simply beyond our comprehension. Father, we thank you 
that we do not have a God who is so far off and who cannot understand, but we have one who is drawn so near that he has been tempted in every way such as man. He has suffered and he has died in our place and he raised because death could not hold his perfect sacrifice. And now he is exalted above every other name. We give you glory, Father, in him, our Savior, Jesus. Would you, Lord, help us in our weakness to acknowledge and recognize those things which you hold as holy so that we might not profane them, that we might protect them, that we might strive together to honor you by them. Oh, Lord, we love you and we thank you for your perfect sacrifice and the call to protect your holy things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, thank you. You may be seated. As we come to the end of our service, we come to our time of response. And I want to remind you, because I think sometimes we forget in our current church climate, that you are actually called to respond to God's word being proclaimed, right? Worship is a response. Worship is not sitting there listening, wondering if you're going to be able to stay awake the whole time, and then figuring out, I did it, I stayed awake, and then walking out of there, or saying, I, I hope he didn't see me, uh, which I do. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but, but regardless, it's about engagement. And so you are called to actually take into heart that which has been proclaimed to you and respond accordingly. So let me ask you, church, Christian, what's your response? Uh, have, you, have you given your life as a thank offering to the Lord? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? That my life is a perfect sacrifice, not because I'm perfect, because I've been given a perfect righteousness. If you have not today, maybe maybe there's just areas in your life where you know that you've struggled to really be a living sacrifice for Him. Lay those down at the feet of Jesus and receive from the perfect one forgiveness for your sins. And fuel and desire to obey Him even more. Maybe you're here and you, you, you just heard what Christ's holy things are. And, and you, could, you could list the ways in which you could grow in a greater desire to protect the holy things of the Lord. I'll tell you, one of the things we will proclaim to you is it's very easy for, for us to see this. It is worship, grow, serve. Are you worshiping? Are you a faithful attender of Christ's church? Not just a tender, participator in worship on a continual basis. Are you engaged with the worship of King Jesus on a regular basis? You cannot protect the church if you don't come. So so are you faithful in protecting Christ's church? Are you growing? You want to be a a faithful protector of, of Christ and His Word. Are you taking the time to be trained and equipped in which to grow? And are you serving? Are you having a practical application of that which has been invested in you in your worship and growth to be able to teach and encourage others as we've been called to do? Simply, are you worship growing and serving here at First Baptist Church of Greg Abel's? And if you don't know what that looks like, if you you want to go even deeper what that looks like, please come forward. We will talk to you about what it really means to live a life, a living sacrifice. And to protect God's holy things. But maybe you're here this morning and you simply don't know if you have a relationship with the Lord. Would you hear the beautiful message of the gospel? You owe the Lord a life of perfect obedience. And because you already messed that up, you therefore owe Him an offering for your sin.
the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came and was both for you. That he was and is your perfect thank offering offered to the Lord. That if you repent of your sins, turn away from them, declare Christ as your king, and you follow the Lord Jesus by faith, starting even from this moment crying out to him, then your life becomes his life. That the Lord sees you and no longer sees your unrighteousness, but only sees the perfect life of obedience in Christ. And then he changes your heart to want to offer your life as a living sacrifice, as evidence that you've received it. And the only way that could happen is by him offering a perfect sacrifice, a sin offering for you, paying the just and righteous penalty for your sin, which is the wrath of a holy God. And Jesus has done it. He's finished the work needed for you to draw near to him. Would you, if you have not already, simply draw near to the king by faith? If you have questions about what that looks like, or you, you, you believe that you've done it, you've, you've proclaimed him, you've been right now and hearing this simply say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want to know you, I want to serve you. I want to draw near to you, but I know I cannot unless Christ cleanses me. If that's happened, please come forward and tell us. We will tell you what it looks like to have these next step as a Christian, a new life in Him. Church family, He is a worthy, worthy God, is He not? And He is deserving of all of our worship.